0: you have uh, the parable of the talents uh, there Matthew 25, beginning of verse 14, where uh, people are, giving different, are given a different amount of talents, and they're responsible for what they do with those talents uh, as the end of that parable shows us. And also uh, Romans 2, 1 to 16, after speaking about Sin and the downward spiral of sin in chapter 1, verses 18 and following. In chapter 2, he speaks of the he's speaking to the person who thinks who thinks they're okay. They're they're morally okay. And he says, Therefore you have no excuse, oh man, every one of you who judges. In other words, you're the person who says, Oh, yeah, that's a bad person. I I don't do anything like that. To that person He says you have no excuse for in passing judgment on another you condemn yourself because you the judge practice the very same things. And he goes on to in this passage to talk about uh, all who have sinned in verse 12 without the law will also perish without the law and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God but the doers of the law who will be justified. So God, and then he says, he ends by saying on that day, when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. That people are responsible for their actions and will be judged accordingly. Thus, the hearers of the gospel are responsible for how they respond to the gospel, for their reaction. If they reject the good news, they're guilty of unbelief. Uh, As Jesus said in John 3, whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. In fact, a person without Christ is is already under condemnation. And then again, though, in talking, talking about human responsibility, Paul, who was entrusted with the gospel... Is responsible for proclaiming the gospel. Uh, we need to think about human responsibility on both sides of the issue. You know, the person who's receiving the gospel is responsible for how he handles, how he responds to it. But those of us who are believers who have been commissioned to proclaim the gospel, we're responsible for proclaiming it. So we have to take our responsibility seriously as well. In fact, Paul. Uh, says if he neglects his commission, he's penalized for unfaithfulness. In First Corinthians 9, 16, he says, For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting, for necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. So God's sovereignty and man's responsibility are taught us side by side in the same Bible. And sometimes, as we saw last week, in the same verse, in Acts 4, 23 to 31. The same passage. Both are are guaranteed by the same divine authority and both therefore are true. So it follows that they they must be held together and not played off of each other. Man is a responsible moral agent though he is also divinely controlled. And though he is also divinely controlled he is also a morally responsible agent god's sovereignty is a reality man's responsibility is a reality too so this is the antinomy we have to deal with in terms of evangelism and remember this this is really this class is really about evangelism just we're lucky talking about divine sovereignty in relationship to evangelism so we have to think about we have to think about this antinomy in terms of evangelism. That's the way we want to think about it uh, in this class. To our finite minds, it's inexplicable, these two together. It sounds like a contradiction. Our first reaction is to complain about it, that, this, that it's absurd. In fact, turn to chapter 9, Romans, and the Apostle Paul deals with these same questions people bring up their objections to this contradiction. In Romans 9, verse 19, after talking about God's sovereignty, just before that, he says, um, For this very purpose I raised you up, speaking to Pharaoh, that I might, show you my, I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed on all the earth. So then, he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? So you see, they're bringing up the argument. Well, wait, it's not fair. If, if, if all my actions are controlled by God, how can he find fault with me? That's, that's what he's, he's arguing here in this passage. If God orders all our actions, how can it be reasonable or right for him to act also as our judge and condemn our shortcomings? But notice how Paul replies to that. He says then in verse 20, But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? What will will what is molded say to the molder, Why have you made me like this? In other words, he doesn't attempt to demonstrate the righteousness of God in his in his actions here. Instead, he rebukes the spirit of the question itself by saying, you know. You're a creature. You were created by God. How can the creature complain to the Creator about how He's made? That's, that's Paul's argument here back to the, back to the uh, complainer. Creatures are not entitled to register complaints against their Creator. Uh, let's, let's read on what he says there then. So, earlier, Paul had shown that God's judgment of sinners is also completely just since our sins richly deserve his sentence. We we see that in Romans chapter 1, verses 18 and following, in 2, 1 to 16 that we were looking at just a minute ago. Our part, Paul tells us, is to acknowledge these facts that we're guilty sinners. And to adore God's righteousness both as king and as judge, and not to speculate just how just his just sovereignty can be consistent with his judge, just judgment, and certainly not to call the justice of either in question, because we find that relationship difficult to understand. I mean, we shouldn't be surprised to find mysteries like this with God. After all, God, the Creator, is incomprehensible. We can't comprehend the mind of God. A God whom we could understand exhaustively and whose revelation of Himself confronted us with no mysteries at all would not be the God of the Bible. We'd be God in our own image. So, as Isaiah 55 says, "...for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord." For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. So again, it's wise for us to maintain the equal emphasis of both God's sovereignty and divine responsibility. Uh, And uh, hold them together in relationship to how the Bible itself holds them together. Now, admittedly, this is more easily said than done. And so there's a tendency to emphasize one or the other here. Uh, we sort of, we sort of uh, unwittingly uh, undercut one by stressing the other. And so it's worth reflecting on this in terms of its connection with evangelism. So the temptation, the first temptation is to is an exclusive concern with human responsibility. As we've seen, human responsibility is a fact. God made us responsible moral agents and he will treat us, he will not treat us uh, as anything less than that. His word addresses each of us individually and each of us is responsible for the way we respond either attention or inattention, belief or unbelief, obedience or disobedience, we cannot evade responsibility for our reactions to God's revelation. We're under His law. So we must answer to Him uh, for our lives. Man without Christ is a guilty sinner. He's answerable to God for breaking God's law. Uh, And that's why he needs the gospel. And when he hears the gospel, he's responsible for the decision he makes. It sets before him the choice between life and death, which is the greatest uh, choice, the most important choice that a person can make. When we present the gospel to an unconverted person, that person... without fully realizing it, will try to blind himself to the seriousness or the gravity of that issue. He will sort of play it off as, well, it's not that important kind of a thing. And justify himself sort of shrugging it off. Then, we have to use every legitimate means in our power to bring home to that person how serious this decision is and how serious his situation is under God. Uh, urge him not to treat himself, not to let, not let him treat so solemn a matter in an irresponsible way. That's our responsibility to do that. Similarly, we ourselves have a responsibility for making the gospel known. As I said before, uh, we have that responsibility. Every Christian, God's command, you know, go and make disciples of all nations. And that wasn't merely spoken to the apostles, but the whole church there. Evangelism is an inalienable responsibility of every believer in every Christian community. So it's it's necessary that we take the thought of human responsibility uh, seriously, both as the proclaimer and as the hearer of the gospel. But we must not let it drive the thought of divine sovereignty out of our minds. You see, we can focus so much on human responsibility that we that we drive divine sovereignty out of the whole picture. And that's where the danger lies. Well, we must always remember it's our responsibility to proclaim the gospel. We must never forget that it is God who saves. Okay, not us. God who saves. It's God who brings men and women under the control of the gospel and it's God who brings it to faith in Christ he does that, our evangelistic work is the instrument God uses to do that um, but the power that saves is not in the instrument, it's in the hand of the one who uses the instrument it's in God's hands and if we forget that only God can give faith we'll start to think that the making of converts depends in the last analysis what we do and not on God. We'll start to think that the decisive factor is the way we evangelize. Incidentally, um, you know, I was asking last week uh, how, we, how you happen to come to faith. I, one of the things I've observed over the years is that in hearing testimonies about how people come to faith... The way that person comes to faith is the way they think that's the way evangelism should work because it worked for them because it brought them to Christ. If a person came to Christ because someone uh, shared a track with them, as I was talking about last night, the four spiritual laws, or something, they will be sold on track ministry. That's the way you should do it. If someone came to Christ in a Billy Graham crusade, they're going to be real big about crusades and, and all of that. So... Keep that in mind and, and be open about other ways of coming to Christ okay? and other methods of evangelism because you might, some people might think well, you know, I just can't I just can't go up to a stranger and, and share a track with them or that kind of a thing. Well, you don't have to do that. There are other ways of evangelism. We'll be talking about that later. But uh, I just throw that in because uh, we can get we can get real excited about how we came to faith, and think that's the only way you do it. You know, sort of. But we have to be careful in regard to not ruling out God's sovereignty here at, uh, by stressing so much human responsibility. This is probably this is probably the temptation more the one who comes from a uh, an Armenian denomination or background. Uh, there's probably more of that emphasis and more of that danger of this temptation for people coming from, from that background. So, let's kind of work this out. What would happen if, if we thought it was our job not simply to present Christ, but actually to produce converts? How would that affect the way we evangelize? Okay. In what way? How 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 you're relying on yourself to do it, not really relying on God. Okay. hmm it's not God, it's it's not going to do it Okay, and what are some ways that we what are some ways that, that would might show itself that we're depending on, on ourselves to in all of this? How would that show in the way we actually do evangelism? this prayer Pardon? this program to me and you're good to go. Okay. All right. Easy to leave it. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. You start changing the substance of what you present. Okay. And yet, in an effort because it's ultimately the goal is how it is and what your performance is so to speak. And you achieve that goal. That's what really matters and suddenly you can change anything to achieve that goal. Sort of water it down a little bit to make it more acceptable to say yes, uh huh. Yeah, yeah, arm twisting in a sense. Mm-hmm. In a church situation, uh, you might sing. Thirty-nine verses of "Just as I am" until someone responds. <laughs> uh, I've seen that happen. So, uh, you know, our evangelism becomes pragmatic and calculating, and and we think it's our presentation that's important. The problem is that philosophy of evangelism can become terrifyingly similar to brainwashing. So anyway, this shows the danger of forgetting the practical implications of God's sovereignty. Always recognizing that God is the one who produces the fruit. And you think about it in terms of God's sovereignty and a person uh, writes it off uh, or doesn't respond. It could be that that's God's method of hardening that person more. Now, it's also true that you may be planting a seed, and somebody else is going to water it, and then somebody will reap down the line. We don't know any, but we do know that God is sovereign. And if a person doesn't respond to us, that's not our responsibility. Our responsibility is: did I proclaim the gospel faithfully and truthfully? That's that's our that's our role. We have to we have to take our responsibility, but not take God's. Okay, leave God with His responsibility. It's right to desire the conversion of sinners, by the way. Uh, It's right to want our presentation to be as clear and understandable and forcible as possible. But it's not right when we take it on ourselves to do more than God has given us to do and intrude ourselves into the office of the Holy Spirit there and His responsibility. The point is, only by letting our knowledge of God's sovereignty control the way in which we plan and pray and work in his service can we avoid becoming guilty of this particular temptation. Now, there's the opposite temptation. And that's a temptation to an exclusive concern with divine sovereignty. And this is probably more a temptation for us who come from a reform tradition. Someone coming out of a humanistic worldview Uh, assuming that the controlling factor in every situation is is man's handling of it rather than God's plan for it and had always looked upon the happiness of man as the most important and interesting thing in creation for God no less than for for man. Uh, But he now sees that this man-centered outlook was sinful and unbiblical, And uh, he sees that from one standpoint, the whole purpose of the Bible is really to overthrow that idea. In books like Deuteronomy and Isaiah and John's Gospel and Romans, smash that to smithereens, that whole idea of a humanistic viewpoint. And now he sees that he, he, he really sees the force of for the first time of, of the West of first answer in Westminster. Confession of Faith, Westminster Shorter Catechism, man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him, enjoy Him forever. And he sees now that the whole pur- purpose of his existence is that with his whole heart and life he should worship God and exalt God. So in every, qu- every situation now, he's asking the question how can this situation magnify God? Um, how many of you here came to the truth of Reformed theology from another tradition as an adult. Elijah? Okay. Arlene? Paul? I did? Okay. <clears throat> you understand how this happens. You get you, you, that truth opens up to you and you say wow, why didn't I see this before? It's all over the Bible. I mean, and you start talking about it to everybody. So he, so suddenly you see that though God uses people as a means of achieving His purposes, in the last analysis, nothing depends on man and everything depends on God. And he sees too that God is handling every situation before, you know, we came on the scene. And He continues to handle it and work out His purposes in each person. He also sees that since God is always in control, he need never fear that he will expose God to loss or damage if he limits himself in serving God in the way God has appointed him. The God who sent him and is pleased to work with him can do without him. And up to this point, the person's right. They're right in thinking all these things. However, his temptation is that in his zeal to glorify God by acknowledging his sovereignty and grace, and by refusing to imagine in his own that it refusing to imagine that his own services are indispensable to God, he's tempted to lose sight of the church's responsibility to evangelize. His temptation is to reason something like this. Agree. The world is ungodly, but surely the less we do about it, the more God will be glorified when he breaks in to restore the situation. The most important thing for us to do is to take care that we leave the initiative in his hands. We don't want to run ahead of God. That's the temptation for this person. And the classic instance of this kind of thinking was provided more than two centuries ago by the chairman of the minister's fraternal, at which William Carey introduced a proposal for a mission society. The chairman piped up, sit down young man, when God is pleased to convert the heathen, he will do it without your aid or mine. Now, before we uh, criticize that chairman too much, he had at least grasped that it's God who saves. Okay, and that's important. And that he saves according to his own purposes and does not take orders from man in the matter. And he had grasped, too, that we must never suppose that without our help, God would be helpless. In other words, he took the sovereignty of God very seriously. His mistake was that he was not taking the church's evangelistic responsibility with equal seriousness. He was forgetting that God's way of saving people... Is to send out his servants to tell them the gospel, and that the church has been charged to go into the world for that very purpose, and that's what we must not forget in our in our zeal to magnify the sovereignty of God, that we have a responsibility, a serious responsibility to take the gospel out uh, to others, as a church and as individuals. You know, it's no, uh, you know thinking about God's sovereignty. It's it's uh, it's not a coincidence that you live where you live, and that your neighbors are your neighbors. I mean, uh, God has placed you where He has for His purposes, uh, or where you work, for the people you're around. God has placed those people there. So we have to take our situation. We have to take our responsibility seriously when it turns when it comes to. How is God seeking to use me in the situation He's placed me with the people He's placed around me to do that? You know, I I heard a person uh, say one time that the non-Christian has two problems when it comes to evangelism. The first problem is he doesn't know any Christians. And that's a problem because how can he hear the gospel, you see? And, and, and you think about that in terms of our situation do I know any non-Christians <laughs> you see if we just hang around with, with believers and we don't know any non-Christians how are we going to fulfill our responsibility to, to share the gospel so that was the, first, that was the first problem the non-Christian had the second problem he had was he does know Christians you know what I mean Christians who aren't being Christian, who aren't acting like Christians. Okay, so let's keep keep those in mind when it comes to evangelism. So our goal as we proceed is to take both doctrines seriously as the Bible does. And to view them in their positive biblical relationship. C.H. Spurgeon was once asked if he could reconcile these two truths to each other. And he said I wouldn't try. I never reconcile friends. (laughs) So, uh, in the Bible, divine sovereignty and human responsibility are not enemies. They're not uneasy neighbors. They're not in an endless state of a cold war with each other. They're friends, and they work together. And that's how God intended. Now, I think instead of starting... I've got another handout, but I won't hand it out now. We'll wait till next week. We're going to move now to evangelism, and I want to get within that. We're going to try to answer from Scripture the following four questions concerning the Christian's evangelistic responsibility. One, what is evangelism? Two, what is the evangelistic message? Three, what's the motive for evangelizing? And four, by what means and methods should evangelism be practiced? So, up to this point, we've kind of been, it's kind of been background dealing with these two, this antinomy of divine sovereignty and human responsibility. And in Packer's book, evangelism, evangelism and the Sovereignty of God, you notice that evangelism is the one that's emphasized there. We're just talking about divine sovereignty in terms of how it relates to the evangelistic enterprise. So, we're going to stop about five minutes early. You have more time to have coffee and fellowship together before the service begins. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you uh, for your word. Thank you, Lord, that you've entrusted it to us to proclaim to those you place around us. Help us to take it seriously, Father. We thank you too, Lord, that you are sovereign and that you're the one who saves. And we are only the instruments. Help us to do that. Help us to be your instruments, Father. And pray to Lord, for our worship service in a few minutes. We pray that you would fill Paul with your spirit as he proclaims your truth. We pray that uh, we might hear it with ears to hear and eyes to see and hearts to respond, that you would be glorified. In Christ we ask. Amen.